middle of a series entitled Present, and over the course of this series, we've been talking about various practices that we do, whether that's communion that Pastor Omer talked about last week, uh, and all the nuances of what those practices mean. Worship, when Junior, uh, Junior and I had a conversation. Scripture, reading, that Pastor Marcus shared about. Prayer, which is the opening week uh, that Pastor Danielle talked about. And today we're going to talk about this thing called service. And it was interesting, when I was thinking about this uh, topic, um, I, I was thinking about the, the, the service industry and also brought back to mind some of those heavy laden, burdened uh, service obligations that a lot of religious institutions heap upon people. That if you are not happening to serve in some particular way, there's something wrong with you spiritually or you're not very dedicated to the church. So uh, what I wanted to do today is share with you actually some reflections, um, which is a little bit of an extended metaphor that is a little bit unseemly that I hope that you'll just hang with. You'll see what I mean in a little bit. Um, some of my metaphors um, aren't necessarily mainstream, and I'll let you know what that means in a second. This verse from Joshua 1-2 has for me been, for many, many years, an incredibly important verse. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, and then the next line is, Moses is dead. <laughs> that's, that's the next line there. Now, the reason why this verse has been important to me for a long time is because the phrase there, the servant of the Lord, and then Moses' assistant, are two separate Hebrew words that are used throughout the scriptures to describe people who are in service to God. The first one, Moses, the servant of the Lord, is the word that we actually talked about a couple weeks ago when Junior and I were having a conversation. Let my people go so that they may Worship me. That's the word evid. It's the word for service. It's also the word for worship. It's the word for work. It's the same word that is used to describe humanity's responsibility in the garden, that we are to serve it and to worship in the sense of care for, tend to the garden. So that's that word. Moses, as a servant, as an evid of God, is to tend to, to work for whatever it is that God wants and intends. And that is the main role that Moses plays. And he's, by all means, the preeminent figure of what it means to serve God. But Joshua leads off with this title, Moses' assistant. And that word is not the same word as servant. It's a different word. And that word is mesharet. Everybody say mesharet. Mesharet is a really fun word for me, and this is where the metaphor is going to come in that I hope that you'll appreciate and excuse if you don't like or you're offended about it. Um, Mesharet is translated in multiple ways. Uh, it's translated into the Greek in these various passages, one who stands beside. Um, it's very common to translate that word very close to the word resurrection. So somebody who stands up next to somebody else to help. So you can consider Joshua in this grand story as somebody who stands up next to Moses to help and to serve. In Joshua 1.1, this word here is usually translated uh, assistant. Upo Ugero uh, is, is to work underneath somebody. Um, and then uh, in Exodus 28, it is it's translated into this word where we get our word liturgy or somebody who is a servicer. So in other words, if you, Patty plays the role 
of the servant when she hosts. Whenever anybody comes up here and leads the prayer and leads the hosting, they are actually participating in being a mesharet. They are somebody who is assisting, who's playing the role of servicing the community, servicing the people of God, that kind of role. Now, the reason why this is important to me is because Joshua actually has a very significant role, not just starting in Joshua 1. In fact, if I asked you the question, where does Joshua really show up strongly in the story, you would think, for those of you who grew up in church who are familiar with some of these stories, be strong and courageous. The one who's going to go into the promised land and conquer and take over and beat out all the Canaanites and Amalekites and all those people, kick them out so that Israelites can take over. Um, But it's really not Joshua that's preeminent in the story at the very beginning. It's really Moses. And Moses is the one that we think about as being the prime liberator, the one who brings us out of Egypt, the one who sacrifices, holds up his hands in in battle, comes down off the mountain with the tablets, right? When, When we think of these big stories, we think of Moses. And Moses, therefore, gets preeminence of place in our story, and then also in our culture. I don't know if you know this or not. We've talked about it here for those of you who've been around for a while, that in the halls of Congress, of the United States Congress, there are a grouping of lawmakers, which include Napoleon and Habarabi and all sorts of other people, but the one that is preeminent, the one that is most central, is this guy right there, Moses. He's right there. He's the one staring, facing the dice. The, the stage. And if you notice, every single other lawmaker that is there is facing left or facing right, depending upon where they are stationed around the halls of Congress, and they are all facing Moses. Moses becomes the preeminent figure of what it means to lead, to be the servant of God, to give the laws and commands, and to create order in this universe. And he is the one When you stand in front of Congress, he is the one who is staring straight at you. But this is a little bit unfair in my mind in the story because Joshua is true. Moses is the Evid. He is the servant of God. But Joshua is the Meshuret. Joshua is the assistant. And what's fascinating is if you go back and think about Joshua's role in the story, he's actually there quite a bit. Um, Moses says to Joshua in Exodus 17, this is the famous story of the fighting with the Amalekites where Moses holds up his hands. Moses says to Joshua, choose some men for us and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Now, most of us know this story of Moses holding up his hands and Aaron and her holding up Moses' arms so that they could win the battle. But we don't often think about Joshua actually being there He's the one that's there actually fighting the battle. And Moses is clearly the leader, but Joshua is the Meshuret. He is the assistant, the one who's standing right next to. He is the one who is actually helping to make all of this happen. Later on in Exodus 24, so Moses set out, did you ever notice this before? With his Meshuret, Joshua. And Moses went up onto the mountain of God. Now, just in case you were confused about Joshua's role or Joshua's place, To the elders, he had said, wait here for us until we come to you again. So when you think of Moses, in fact, every, I look for this, every single depiction of Moses up on Mount Sinai, getting the Ten Commandments with the thunder and lightning of God, 
and coming down with the law. It's him by himself. And I'm like, wait a second. Joshua was there too. The servant was there along with his master, with the other servant. The servant was there. The assistant was there with the servant. Joshua plays that same role. And then there's this famous story where the Israelites, after Moses comes down off the mountain and he hears the revelry, the chaos that's going on, and the Israelites are clearly no longer obeying God, but now they're following after their own minds and their own conceptions of who God is. They form a golden calf. You know this story, Ten Commandments. Yeah, Charlton Heston, yeah, big, strong, bearded man, red coat, right? When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. Oh, maybe Moses was just hard of hearing or something. But it was Joshua who heard it. It was the attendant who took notice. It was the one who we don't even think about as being central to the story or important to the story that was actually there holding up, making the story happen. And so Moses is there, and he's very angry, and he throws down the tablets. The big old story there is, and what, what, what you need to know is Joshua is there. It's like, don't forget, I heard it first. Joshua was there. In other words, Joshua had been with Moses all along as his assistant, as his meshuchet. Now, that's why Joshua 1.1 has been really important to me for many, many years. Because I think we often feel, many of us feel as if, what it really means to be a servant is to be Moses. Is to be the person whose face deserves to be on Congress. The one who deserves to be depicted in movies. That's what it means to truly be a servant. And I feel like what is missing from the story, as we all do, is that we have a tendency to start to see the big, the spectacular, and we completely miss, even though it's right there in the story, the insignificant, maybe unspectacular, very subtle, key elements and people of the story that make the story happen. There's a phrase that you might have heard Danielle and I use over the years, the major significance of minor characters in the Bible. The major significance of minor characters in the Bible. And part of what service means in our grand narrative and story is that you are never, ever too little, too small, too insignificant, too unknown. That is not a category in the economy of God. Service happens because that's who you are, that's who God has called you to be, and you have no idea how central you are to the story. There are people actually listed in our story who aren't even given names, that if they didn't do what they did or weren't there at that particular moment, the entire story would have turned. Now, here's my running analogy and my metaphor, if you'll go with me. The word mesheret uh, means service or attendant. If you go to Israel today and you want to catch a cab or a taxi to go from Tel Aviv Airport to Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, you would catch a shirut from the same word mesheret, a service. I am providing a service to you to travel from one place to another. However, if you take service, mesheret or shirut, and pluralize it, meaning 
not service, but services, the word in Hebrew is actually sherutim, which means bathroom, water closet. So in other words, Joshua is the bathroom to Moses. And what I've started to use in my life and I think it's an apt analogy. And I know it might be a little... I know, I know. I totally know I'm boarding on scatological humor here, but hang with me for a second here. Being a bathroom is actually not that terrible of an analogy or a metaphor. First of all, some bathrooms are really nice. <laughs> Woo! So, some of us, some of that. But I was also thinking that throughout every movie I've ever seen, whenever anybody needed an escape or needed to refresh, needed to collect themselves, and maybe they just needed to talk it through with a friend, where did they go? They went to the bathroom. And it's in the bathroom where amazing things happen. Privacy. <laughs> See, I knew it. I just knew it. This, was not, this metaphor was not going to go well. But it was in the bathroom this nondescript place that you wouldn't think of as very important, but becomes a central turning point in the particular story. And it actually becomes a place where very important, critical things happen in your life. If you are preparing for something, if you want to make yourself presentable in some particular way, if there's anything embarrassing that you need to fix, you go to the bathroom. The bathroom the restroom, the water closet, whatever you call it in your language, in your dialect, <laughs> is actually a tremendous service. And we, the reason why this metaphor is so funny is because we laugh at it. Oh, yeah, like great things happen in the bathroom. Of course we laugh because why, why would we think great things happen in the bathroom? But that's the whole point, isn't it? We don't think of the bathroom or we don't think of people who provide services. We don't think of that as having the same elevated status or role. And yet it does, because I guarantee you, if your bathroom stopped working or if you didn't have one, what would happen? All chaos would break loose. And this is also made true by the way in which some municipalities actually try to restrict what you can do in the bathroom. This is a picture that was taken by some sort of um, regulations that were uh, developed in Santa Cruz. No shaving, bathing, laundering in this restroom. Why? Because they were getting tired of vagrants and homeless using the very services that the bathroom is supposed to provide. So the fact that they're telling you you can't do this shows just how critical and important that place actually is. And for me, this is the metaphor. I, I, I think I kind of want to be a bathroom. Would I be willing to be the kind of person and place where other people can bring their crap and just be fully, completely who they are. No embarrassment, no shame. They can put themselves back together again. They can be restored, refreshed. They can talk things through. And nobody would ever need to know how great I was as a leader and servant of the Lord like Moses. No, just like Joshua, I'm just a mesherette. I'm just a bathroom. That's all I am. So when we think about an assistant, when we think about service, when we think about what does it mean to serve, this has nothing to do with you are, you need to serve and you need to put in your hours in order to be a good Christian in order to make your way up the, the spiritual ladder so that you've done X number of hours, you served X number. No, 
This is about an entire identity and a flipping over of the hierarchies and the values and the systems and the ways in which we've put things. Some people, guess what, who stand up here and who have a microphone and who talk are somehow in our minds, and because there's a stage that happens to be elevated, architecture has a lot to do with this, are more important or are greater servants of God in our minds. This is what happens in our thinking. And our story says, no, it's not. The form and the function of our gatherings has nothing to do with the value of the service. Nothing. So to be a mesherette, whatever you need me to be, however I can be of service, that's what it means to be a servant. And that's why this is so critically important when we talk about practicing the presence of God. Because here's the deal. <laughs> if we think of whatever, whatever conception we have in our mind, whatever is important or valuable, or, or we think of Moses or Deborah or David or Solomon or Paul or Peter, I want to be those people up there. I mean, that's the thing I want to strive to be. Then we completely miss Tidius Justice. You don't even know who Tidius Justice is. He's mentioned once in the New Testament in the book of Acts. That's it. just one name, a worshiper of God. You've never heard of him. He's there. He's in the story. And, of course, Joshua standing beside Moses this entire time. If we think that being a Moses-like figure, we are going to miss completely the very presence of God in every single, small, insignificant, unseen, uncelebrated, unnoticed moments of our time in service. We miss it. We completely miss it because we have our eyes set on something completely different. And that's why service is part of the practice of the presence of God. Now, really quickly, I don't know how quickly we're going to do this. When we shift to the New Testament, there's a whole new cultural milieu that comes into play. Without going into long history, in short, Alexander the Great brought Hellenism, which is Greek thinking and Greek philosophy, to the table. There are two main characters I'd like to bring to our attention for this specific talk because you could spend an entire PhD studying Greek mythology and philosophy. Aristotle wrote several treatises, of course. He's one of those um, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, you know, ever heard of them? Yeah, morons. Princess Bride, look it up. Um, he wrote on friendship and love. Very quickly, if you read about what he suggested, was the fundamental underlying mechanism of how love worked and how friendship worked and how relationships worked. He would write this. Every form of friendship then involves association. And what does that mean? That means that love, friendship, the relationships that we have are virtuous because it is ultimately based upon pleasure or gain. He made observation that the reason why I love you, the reason why I give you friendship, the reason why I serve you is because I am actually getting something in return. The fundamental premise of this entire thing is that I am actually being self-serving. I'm not actually serving. I'm doing everything actually because I know I'm going to get something out of it. I'm doing you a favor because you're going to do a favor ultimately for me. I'm doing something for you because you're actually taking care of me. Virtuosity in Aristotelian thinking in love and friendship is actually not completely virtuous. It's somehow transactional. There's pleasure or gain to be had. A couple hundred years later, a gentleman by the name of Seneca 
writes a, a, a treatise on the benefits, on benefits, de beneficis. He was a contemporary of the Apostle Paul. Some actually suggest, because of the writings that we have in the New Testament and the writings that Seneca have, that they were actually in conversation with one another. And they were trying to debate one another. And what happens here in On Benefits seems to be exactly one of those areas of potential conversation. He starts off this entire treatise by saying, among the numerous faults of those who pass their lives recklessly and without due reflection, my good friend Liberalis, I should say that there is hardly anyone so hurtful to society as this that we neither know how to bestow or how to receive a benefit. We don't know how to give each other good things. We don't know how to serve one another well. This is what he writes later on in the treatise. For I do not require that he should consult my interests without any regard to his own. No, I also desire, this is how we give benefits, that a benefit given to me should be even more advantageous to the giver, provided that when he gave it, he was considering us both and meant to divide it between himself and me. Do you see what Seneca is saying? Pulling in from Aristotelian thinking, basically the benefits that we give one another, the service that we give one another, is for the express purpose of self-benefit. The reason why I do, you, do good something for you is because you're ultimately going to do good something for me. The fundamental premise on both of these philosophies is a philosophy, is a thinking, a worldview of quid pro quo. That is a this for that. It is a favor for favor. It is the idea that I'll scratch your back and you scratch mine. And this was the fundamental premise of the development of many of the philosophies that we even have to this particular day. Uh, there is some thinking that have su suggested that capitalism works off of the same premise, right? The idea of self-interest driving markets. That's a conversation for a whole another day. Reciprocation, mutual concern, shared benefit, you win, I win. Ultimately, self-interest, because I'm going to get something out of this. And ultimately, at the bottom of this, based upon Aristotle's thinking, self-love. It's because I'm actually taking care of myself. That's the ultimate reason why we have benefits and why we serve. If Seneca is writing this contemporaneous with Paul, which most likely he was, then what Paul writes in Philippians regarding how we are to act because of who Christ is, is a radical departure philosophically worldview-wise, from what the Greek philosophers were advancing. Knowing this, or at least understanding this, and I know this is really hard to think about. Like, what world actually lives this way? I know, we have to imagine that. But imagine a world that worked this way. Consider Paul's writing here. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. And in almost direct contradiction to Seneca, let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Why? Why should I do that? 
empty mindset, not even consider my own interest, not even consider my own self-love, not even consider a mutuality. Don't even consider that. Why? Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ. Because there was a model of service that was radically different from the mutuality and reciprocity of Hellenistic thinking. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the very form, and I put the Greek word there, doulos, which means servant, taking the very form of a servant, being born in human likeness. This, my friends, is a radical statement regarding how we are to posture our hearts and our attitudes towards one another. How we are to serve and to love one another. How we are to see the hierarchy of value that other people heap upon us. And this kind of service has no conditions, no terms, and no favors whatsoever. It doesn't exist. Why? How did that idea come into existence by these early Christians? One answer, Jesus. I know, I know, the simple answer. But this is why for us, we have centered our identity in following after that way. Because once you understand how the early Christians saw Jesus in the crucifixion and how it radically changed the way in which they lived that gave us the virtues of service and humility that we actually value today, then you realize you have to go back to that well. You have to go back to that spring. You have to root yourself once again in that story. In his book, Dominion, Tom Holland writes this, increasingly, there are Christians who rather than keeping the brute horror of crucifixion from their gaze, yearned instead to fix their eyes fully upon it. Crucifixion was something that you did not want to look at. It was grotesque. It was offensive. It was hurtful. It was visceral. You did not want to stare at it. And Christians began to use the crucified body of Jesus, his crucifixion, as the symbol for how we are to live. This Man, who is God in the flesh, Paul talks about in Philippians, would sacrifice himself completely for no benefit of his own. That's how we are to live. That's our model. That's what it's like to be human. That's what it means to be human. That's what it means to be Christian. That's what it means to be the fullness of people made in the image and likeness of God. This next quote is a lengthy one, but it's worth every single word. Richard Tarnas, in The Passion of the Western Mind, who is, to my knowledge, not a Christian whatsoever, just historically charts through what were the great influences that shaped Western thinking. He writes this, In its moral teachings, Christianity brought to the pagan world a new sense of the sanctity of all human life, the spiritual value of the family, the spiritual superiority of self-denial over egoistic fulfillment. That's inc- <laughs> it's incredible. Of worldly 
holiness over worldly ambition, gentleness and forgiveness over violence and retribution, a condemnation of murder, suicide, the killing of infants, the massacre of prisoners, the degradation of slaves, sexual licentiousness and prostitution, bloody circus spectacles, all in the new awareness of God's love for humanity and the moral purity that love required in the human soul. Christian love, whether divine or human, was not so much the realm of Aphrodite, nor even primarily the eros of the philosophers, but was the love epitomized in Christ that expressed itself through sacrifice, suffering, universal compassion. This Christian ethical ideal of goodness and charity was strongly promulgated and at times widely observed having a more pervasive influence on the mass culture in the Christian era than had Greek philosophical ethics in the classical world. When I read stuff like this and I think about our heritage and I ponder how in the world did we get here, why do we have things like basic universal human rights? Why do we care about refugees? Why do we care about racial justice? Why do we care about gender equality? Why is it that we care about all of these things that we work so desperately hard for? It's because back then, somebody modeled what it meant to completely give up any sense of personal benefit, self-love, and self-interest in service to others. And the crucifixion is the ultimate symbol of that sacrifice. And I propose to you, my friends, it is this kind of service that our world needs once again. This is what we mean when we say serve. It's not, I take five hours out of my week to go do something nice. That's fantastic. We are not diminishing that, but that is not the distillation of what it means to serve. The fullness of service to practice the presence of God is to recognize that you are a mesherette. You are an assistant. You are a servicer. This is who you are. It's how you posture yourself to the world. Completely emptying of self-interest and mutuality. You are not Aristotelian. You do not follow Seneca, or at least I hope you don't. Perhaps some of us do. We have been influenced by Greek Hellenistic philosophy. The goal here is to recognize where that influence has come and to elevate once again Christ above it all and to model our lives after him. When I was in college, I had multiple jobs. It's just what you do when you're in college. And I used to carry around a lot of keys. And I was really proud of my keys because I was really insecure and keys made me really happy. So there, you got a little bit of insight into my psyche. I had a little key ring. I had my car key. I had my dorm key. But then I had the kitchen key and the janitorial key and, you know, the key to the classrooms and all the things that I was responsible for, right? So I had a whole bunch of keys and I jiggle, jiggle them around, you know, when I walked because it made me feel hot and special. And people would make fun of me. And every time people made fun of me for these keys, I would say, well, important people have a lot of keys. And I had a friend of mine who quipped back at me, no, 
Janitors have a lot of keys. <laughs> now, that's funny, and you laugh appropriately. Why? Sorry to make you a little uncomfortable, but I felt this way too. We don't think janitors are important. We don't think that this job is important, which is why that joke works. We have somehow elevated a hierarchy of value that certain kinds of acts of service are more important than others. But is it not true in the economy of God that every single act of sacrificial love is an equally valued act of service? And the entirety of the community depends upon it. If everybody didn't participate in that way, consider what our communities would be like. I didn't title this. It wasn't in the email, but I'll give you a hint when I was putting the slide deck together. Do you know what I called this talk? Just be the bathroom. Just be the bathroom. To serve as a servant is to be like Christ. This is what it means to embody, incarnate, and incarnate the presence of Jesus. To serve as a servant is also then to confront the hierarchies of cultural power. I will not at all, or I hope I never will, say that the President of the United States, dignitaries, people in high offices, people with titles, are more important than the people that sweep the floors, the people that take out the trash, the people that pick up the crap that many of us leave behind. And I could not at all conclude this, sharing this teaching without talking about you. Because when I was putting this together, I was like, man, do we have mesherets in this church. And I started going through the list of names in my head of people that just serve. They don't care about the title. They don't care about being known or called out. They don't want their name on a slide. They don't. It's just because that's who they are. And they show up and serve. And, they, and by the way, that doesn't just happen here. That also happens because I know there's people in this church that sit by the bedside of others. Not because they're getting paid, not because they're getting accolades, not because they're getting a higher degree, because that's who they are to completely give of themselves to serve another. There are people in this community that go out of their way to serve refugee families. We don't put their names on the slide. We don't put it on the website. We don't splash and say, oh, now here's the celebration. Here's the trophy. No, it's because that's who they are. We have phenomenal servants among us. We have people who act, like Joshua, who are there every single step of the way, Moses gets the glory, but Joshua's there doing the work the entire time. And I'm so tremendously grateful and thankful to each and every one of you who live this way. You didn't need this talk. You gave me the illustration for this talk. I thought of you every step of the way. So I want to thank you for being that. 
I really, when Danielle and I say we love this church, this is part of what we mean. We really, it's awe-inspiring and amazing. So my friends, how do you practice the presence of God? Don't just serve, be the bathroom. Just be there for when somebody needs to be there, for when trash needs to be picked up, when you need to hold the bucket for somebody to just vomit emotionally with you, when you need to sit by the bedside, and when nobody will ever know or notice that you did it. But you know, because our story has told us so, that that is such an incredibly valuable and important, virtuous part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We're going to move into a time of communion, which is the ultimate symbol, once again, of this very thing that we were talking about. The very thing of who and what Jesus uh, did as an act of service. For those of you who are here, everyone is welcome to the table to participate and to eat of the symbols that recognize the sacrifice that Jesus made. So as we take these elements, we are reminded once again, ah, that's the life that Jesus lived. And so now this is the life that we now live in service to one another. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, gave it to them, saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As we sing, please come to the table. All are welcome.